0: He'll get a proper Stereo Embers, the podcast, introduction in a minute. But if I had to succinctly sum up my guest today on the program, I would say this. One man, one guitar, one pair of sunglasses, hundreds of great songs. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. such a great song. I almost played the whole thing. That is the music of my guest today on the program, Graham Parker. Let me tell you a little bit about Graham Parker. Yeah, one man, one guitar, one pair of sunglasses, hundreds of great songs. That pretty much covers it, but there's more to the story than that. And tempting as it may be to go on and on and on about Graham Parker, I'll keep it short and we'll get to the conversation. All right, so when I said that Graham Parker has hundreds of great songs, I really wasn't exaggerating. Over the course of his career, the East London-born singer-songwriter has put out close to 30 albums, and every single one of them are great. All of them. Whether it's Howling Wind, or Squeezing Out Sparks, or Another Gray Area, or Deep Cut to Nowhere, or Cloud Symbols, I could go on. The point is, every single Graham Parker album is a winner. I was making a list of my favorite all-time songs a few months ago. Yeah, slow time on the dating front, apparently. And in my top 50, there were 10 Graham Parker songs. He's the real deal. Parker grew up a huge fan of the Beatles, Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, and ska and reggae music. And you can hear those influences coursing through his songbook. His compositions swing and shake and sway and groove with some of the most infectious pop hooks you'll ever hear. Now, Graham Parker's early life could easily be a series of novels. As a teenager and in his early 20s, he hung out in the Channel Islands and Paris, hitchhiked through Spain and Morocco, and worked on the docks in Gibraltar. And you and I both know there are probably stories in between those docks and roads and islands. Putting it simply, Graham Parker has lived a life. And his life in music is equally as staggering and fascinating as his life of travel— Here are some career highlights, but remember, this is a partial list. This could be much longer. With his band The Rumor, he was produced by Nick Lowe. He opened for Dylan. He played on Top of the Pops, had top 40 hits and albums, toured Australia, been on labels as varied as RCA, Arista, and Bloodshot, and he collaborated with folks like Bill Janowitz of Buffalo Tom, The Smithereens, and Kate Pearson of the B-52s. And he's still at it, and he sounds better than ever. His two new songs, Humans Are the Mutant Virus and 3D Printer, rank among his best. And the fact of the matter is, they also prove Graham Parker can't be stopped. This is one of those conversations I've been wanting to have for a really long time, and it did not disappoint. So here's me and Graham Parker having a chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
1: than last in my opinion because there's no rules left you know it's like get on with it get COVID tough luck you know and I think it puts people off coming to gigs it's COVID is still around and you know that that's that's going to make people think twice I think but um, you know audiences <laughs> they've been good I mean they had some really good
0: gigs but in terms of like an art for an artist to think about it's enough to think about like doing a show putting on a show and then sort of throw in your mortality. <laughs> As a- yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. You don't know what way it's going to go, even with a b- whole bunch of vaccinations like a pin cushion. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I just know two people who are family members of mine who just got COVID and it wasn't funny. You know, it wasn't nothing, even though they've been vaccinated and it might be the Omicron. But it was, you know, heavy flu like symptoms and feeling pretty rotten. Um, and one couldn't get on a plane for two almost two weeks because they remained testing positive. Uh, getting on a plane from the UK, that is, to America, um, Britain doesn't care. You can come in with Ebola if you like and spread it around. We don't care anymore because we have a conservative <laughs> government who are, you know, just <laughs> they only care about themselves. And uh, they're, well, what are we talking about? Governments. Yeah, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> but. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, just go go to go to Britain, man. Come in, bring your diseases with you. We don't care. don't even have to be vaccinated, I don't think. You certainly don't have to show, because when I flew over in June, on June 3rd, you had to have a negative test. And so then you go into Heathrow Airport where you don't have to wear a mask. So you go into Heathrow Airport, which is jammed like it was before COVID, and you'll catch COVID and bring it to America anyway. Hey, it's all making sense to me,
0: Alex. Yeah, you're you're connecting a lot of dots for me right now, Graham. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Get
1: out there in the real world,
0: baby. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've never you've never struck me as a timid guy, and I wonder if COVID did COVID sort of activate a part of a self preservation element of you that hadn't you hadn't really thought about before.
1: Uh, well, I'm a songwriter, so the only thing that matters in this world is me. Um, I'm being funny. I am to something. So come on. Get with the program. Yeah, well I so I have a very strong self-preservation, it, it, you know, it, whatever you call it. Um, a sense of self preservation um because <laughs> I'm, I'm chicken i don't want to die i don't want bad things to happen particularly which they will because you get old and you get sick and you die of vile putrescent deaths i mean obviously but um <laughs> lonely as well um jesus you, you don't know your children are standing in front of you saying dad who are you dad i didn't have any children go away um <laughs> it will happen no it, The, um, yeah, I, I, I thought, um, yeah, I don't know. I had all this, I had all these range of symptoms on March, uh, March 28, 2020. We just got into lockdown. I was in Britain. So I ain't going to America now for the touring I had, obviously it was canceled and then it was canceled again, but I got to America in June and, uh, you know, it was okay. And I did, did very little, which was fun. Um, but it, I went through a range of symptoms, like um, I got up in the morning, went for a walk and got down to the end of my block. I was off for a two-mile walk or something. You know, the weather was beautiful, March twenty, The weather was nice in Britain. You could walk anywhere for, as long as you kept moving. That was the rules, you know. Go in shops. All the shops were open. I couldn't find a mask for love nor money. There were no vaccinations, no tests. You know, it just hit. First lockdown. Here we go. What the hell is coming next? And uh, I... You know, I enjoyed it basically because you could breathe the air in London without feeling the tang of pollution in the back of your throat, you know. It was it was quite wonderful, really. I, I mean, I thought, can this go on for a long time? Thank you very much. Uh, apart from you can't travel anywhere. That sucked. But, yeah, so, um, and I got this range of symptoms. Then at 5 o'clock I had my English cup of tea and a biscuit, chocolate biscuit, and couldn't taste anything. Um, so I thought, oh, here we go. And my neck was burning. My head was burning. I thought, I've got this thing. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't know what to expect. You know, I'm not exactly 20 something and people were dying already. You know, and long COVID was there was certain signs of things that, you know, this might go the wrong way for you or it might not. And by eight o'clock, I was eating dinner. I was tasting it. And so I'm, I think I I don't know. That's weird. And uh, next day I woke up and I I felt weird, like I'd had a cold or something, but it was nothing like a cold. So I'm hoping I got all these antibodies. I'm hoping. And I don't know. I'll never know because you couldn't get a test. Yeah. But it was an unusual thing because the sense of tasting tipped me off. Um, There again, it could be psychosomatic. You know, I could have been inventing it, but I wasn't feeling well. I know that much and I was burning up. Uh, And I didn't have a thermometer because the shops ran out of those. (laughs) What masks there were went pretty quickly. And I was going in shops where you're sort of four feet from people. And they're that wide, you know, about five feet wide because they're Indian corner shops and the vegetable shop down the road. And, uh, you know, people didn't didn't have masks. They were sort of putting things over their face, their hands and things, you know. Yeah. Um, So uh, it was. I don't know what I had, but it felt it it went through that range of symptoms that sort of made me think, you know, maybe I've got some good antibodies here. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm being careful. If I go to a shop now, I'm going to wear a mask. You know, I'm I'm sorry to all you anti-mask idiots. Um, It's I don't want to catch a cold and I catch colds at the drop of a hat when I before I go on tour the day before. Usually the stress has hit me. You know, my immune system goes down and I catch a cold and I had to do a tour you know, wondering if I'll lose my voice and feeling like I will lose my voice and having a day when I will and somehow getting up on the stage and the voice comes back if I'm lucky. So, you know, I, it's a, it, this is my job. I have responsibilities to ticket buyers. And I have been going out to the merch table a bit. I'm not selling any merch. I've got a QR code at the moment because, you know, the venues are now taking up to 30%, some of them via merch, and it's, uh, I don't want to drain stuff around with me either so um but i've been going out a few times and wearing a mask and then it sort of comes off you know and you stand back for people do if you're going to do a selfie if you insist i'd rather selfies were banned from the planet earth but um if you're going to do one you know a, a distant one six feet in front of me you know so I'm, so I'm not <laughs> like exactly being perfect, no, no chance. But I have responsibilities to the next ticket buyers, right? And so I, it, it'd be best if I don't catch anything, including COVID, because I, 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 they're the most important people in the house. Frankly, the people who, who come and buy tickets to see me, and uh, I'm privileged and lucky that some people still do. So, you know, I I, I don't want to have a cat- Those people have been through three cancellate two years of cancellations and disruptions. So. You know, I want to, uh, I'd like to sort of get through all the gigs without uh, having to mess with them, you know.
0: Well, it sounds like you had COVID for 13 hours and COVID changed its mind about you. It was like, nah, we're not going to mess with Graham Parker. <laughs> yeah,
1: that maybe I don't know. That would be unusual because I catch every cold that's going, you know. But um, they're different, you know, to a certain degree. They're viruses. And flus, I get a flu shot every year because, you know, when I'm in England, I'm usually there at that point in time. And the NHS just keeps bugging me on my text, get a flu shot. And three months later, I do because, you know, flu seasons they come and go and you don't even know they're happening. I mean, COVID, we know it happened. We know it was affecting people and some quite badly, you know, because I know people who went on for a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah, not pleasant. And I, I do think that there. It, what you're saying, though, is true, because I, I told you I teach college for a living. And if I get a cold, I feel almost embarrassed. I feel like I'm presenting a, a weaker version of myself. It's a it's something it's my own psychological yeah. issue. Do you feel when you have a cold? Is it just there's a worry, you're going to lose your voice? But also, yeah. you're you're presenting an inferior version of yourself, right? Doesn't it feel that way?
1: Well, yeah, because sometimes the voice gets hampered. Right. I want to be my best every night, as good as I possibly can be. And um, it, the last time I toured at UK, I think it was a solo tour, and I caught something the day before. I even gave it to my tour manager, who doesn't catch anything. He's one of those guys who say, oh, I've got a bit of the sniffles, I must have a cold. Whereas I'm in World War Three of the head, you know, But <laughs> the nose, I can't breathe, you know. and I, It's a total worry about going to the vocal cords, and it did do in Leeds particularly I went out on stage tried to do a soundtrack I couldn't sing Uh. and um, well he said to me my tour how do you sing because this particular version of the cold um, whatever it was this was before Covid um, it went to my it it hurt the throat like knives in the throat and I went through a whole tour with that and and he said how do you sing I said welcome my nightmare this is what it's like this is what it's like to be a performer you don't want to catch this stuff you know um, and uh, I thought in soundcheck I'm I'm going to not be able to do this gig. But I went on stage. I, I spent the next three hours going ah, doing these t- low, very low G chord warm ups. You know, I barely ate dinner. I managed to get something down in between all the
2: mm-hmm,
1: and uh, it wasn't really there. And I thought this is no good, man. I'm not going to get through this gig. I'm going to do. I'll go out. So I walked on stage and said, look. I've got a serious block, you know, I, can't, I haven't been able to talk today, and I, I couldn't sing on tune on any single note in sound check, but I'm going to give it a go. And I started singing Watch the Moon Come Down, one of my numbers that I often start a set with, and I thought, okay, that's science, that shows signs of hope. I think it's a serious mental thing to, to do something to yourself backstage in those three hours. You know, this will not happen. I will be able to sing. Yeah. And you have to keep the voice moving. It's okay to say, I'll just stop talking now and making a sound. That That's not right. You need to keep it vibrating, the vocal cords. Um, You know, this technical stuff, probably people go on and on about squeezing out sparks and whatever, but the technical stuff to me is the interesting and more important stuff. This is what it takes to make it work, you know, I mean, I don't want to know what it's like being an astrophysicist, you know, there's probably all kinds of really boring details that people don't want to know about. (laughs) Went in, punched the clock, you know, had some coffee, sat around, you know, did some math. Yeah, this this rocket won't take off. Uh, you know, maybe there's all that going on. So I'm telling you about the nuts and bolts of being a singer, and uh, who wants to be at their best every time because I have a responsibility. That's it, basically. Um, so it's always you're always a bit, you know. You, but I've gone on stage with flu where I couldn't walk the day before. I couldn't get out of bed, and I've gone on stage and done the gig. And uh, you know, I feel like plenty of times I felt like I was going to pass out on stage. Because I'm old, (laughs) uh, no, even when I was young, because I smoked most of my life, you know. But um, it's, it's, you know, there's a certain amount of bloody mindedness and willpower involved, and you have to power through it. And and that gig in Leeds, I managed to do the entire gig, and the next day, because of all the warming up, my vocal cords weren't too bad at all, and I finished the tour, and and it was amazing because, as I say, my tour manager was saying, "How do you do it when you feel like this?" Because even he got sick but um yes yeah, so,
0: anyway carry on well no was that one with a full band or was it was that just you
1: no that was a solo in 2019 yeah. The 2018 tour i did with a full band with the rumor brass section we did only six dates in 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 london in england i mean um which were fantastic actually really fantastic and uh, also for the reason that if you only do six dates and you keep it pretty tight you might get away without losing about 10, 20 grand uh, with all those people. And I put them all in their hotel rooms, in the same hotel as me. You know, I can't say, I'm over there, guys. You guys are sharing rooms, sorry. Because that's the sensible way of doing it when you've got uh, a five-piece band, including yourself and three horn section guys. But, um, you know, I know I know what it's like being a musician, and I want to pay them and decently. And I managed to get away with a break-even tour, pretty much, um, with all those people in, in their own nice hotel rooms—pretty decent hotels, actually. Good hotel. And, uh, so, so that was a—and the playing was the music, the most important part, was fantastic. So, I, I'd like to do that again in, in the UK with the, the Gold Chops, who played on this new live. Um, where the vinyl is out for this record, Five Old Souls, because we recorded one gig of the tour. And they played on the Cloud Symbols album, my last studio album. Um, so, and I've just done a single with them, which should be out at any moment. It should have been out two months ago. I don't know what my record company are having tech problems. Hundred percent Records. Hello, I keep shouting at you. Where the fuck is it? God's sake, it's digital. What the? I don't know what's holding it up. It's a two two tracks, and I've been playing the songs live, and they're going down exceptionally well because they're deeply offensive. Um, So people relate to deeply offensive coming from me. They don't hear it so often these days. Um, And uh, yeah, they are. uh, Yeah, they're good. And they're lockdown related. I started writing in the first lockdown. So they've got that going for them. Um, One is called Humans Are the Mutant Virus and the other is called 3D Printer, which is just sick and creepy. Really, I'm deeply sick. Um, so people are loving that because they've got a sense of humour. You know, most of my audience are, you know, people with a sense of humour. Um, a lot, of, lot of audience. You know, you get some people in the audience they "Look, at you like, I don't understand. Oh, I thought he was. What is he? Is this a joke? I don't get it." There's some of those. You get a few of them, well, but you know, many of them are up for the match. They understand that uh, I'm just, you know, taking the piss
0: out of everything. Well, if they'd read your book, you they, they would know. <laughs>
2: yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's right. The hardcore fans know.
0: They would know. Um, yeah. In terms of your own your own creative output, whether it's whether it's writing uh, songs or or um, prose, are have you not slowed down? And have you have you kept it going? to a pretty steady rate of creativity.
1: Well, it's very different now. The, the urgency, you know, why would there be urgency, really, at this point? I've made 25, 26 albums. I feel like I've and done, you know, a lot of things. It, it feels like, okay, I've done it all. Why am I bothering? And then I write a song, and it's like, oh, well, 11 others might work with that or 10 others, <laughs> you know, so the whole the chain starts off again. But these songs these days, they are, they kind of, you um, they grow very slowly i am i've become a much more of a perfectionist and i'm trying to get them under just under three minutes a lot of the times where before there would all there was that four minute plus stretch mm. where you know it was normal for all songs to be about four minutes to five i even did an eight minute song once she's she wants so many things on the deep cut to know around which is uh, Closing in on eight minutes and the other side of the reservoir was another one because that beautiful instrumental passage at the end, which is which is nice. That's a different thing, but I'm you know, so I am honing almost every lyric with a fine tooth coat. And instead of the songs being you know, like two albums in the first year and then an album almost every year and tours, I don't know, I've absolutely no idea how I did it. It must have been I was just still bursting with this new energy of being a professional and having record deals and all this, bursting with that and and writing at speed between tours, endless, you know, long, long, 4 months tours, you know, just making notes and things. I could never write effectively on tour, but I, I, I amassed a lot of material either in here or on paper and turned them into songs. As soon as I got off the road, excuse me, I just dropped the iPad there, as soon as I've got off the road, man, I've, I've, you know, managed to write albums. But these days, a song can take three years.
0: Really? years.
1: Yeah, and it could be end up being two two minutes, 45 seconds. Um, they, You know, it's just a, a different process now where I'm not in a hurry, and I can't be in a hurry. I feel that I'm not doing the songs justice. They're like, really, there's some new form now. They feel like a whole new form, even though they you know use traditional um chord sequences with the usual twists that i throw in which musicians always find challenging and think that's interesting you know because there's there's often something that the, the minor chord when you don't expect it and the, and the, the the time signature twist here and there but essentially they've got a simplicity from the roots upwards and um uh that's, they're just taking a while and um i um i've got this these two songs coming out any minute hopefully digitally only um so you can rip me off royally by streaming it thank you i don't it doesn't matter anymore you know it's it's legal to do that um so that's that's the way it is um but hopefully i can get into the studio later in the year with the gold tops and uh make another album because i'm pretty much there now with the songs and also, the, the you know the the COVID period made me think, what's the point mm. of writing and finishing songs? What is the point because I can't go into a studio? I would hate to have be ready to make an album, and then you know a, a year of COVID hits you and you can't go into a studio with people. You know, well I wouldn't have wanted to. It'd be silly. You know, you know, you know. I'm not going to be recording in Abbey Road, even though it's a walk up the street from where I live in London. It costs too much. You know. I once wrote to them and said, do you do any deals for people who aren't superstars? They said, no. <laughs> so I used, I used an equally famous, well, not equally famous, but very famous studio around the corner called Rack to do an album. That was with the Rumour, the second Rumour album. And they cut me a, a decent deal that worked, you know, for like a 10 days or something. But Abbey Road wouldn't have it. Uh, even though they were owned by Universal, and I was on Universal at the time.
0: You would have thought, I mean, I love that you asked if there was a non-superstar rate. (laughs) Yeah, well,
1: (laughs) for normal people, songwriters, you know, who happen to have made a very good living out of this for 45 years, you know. No. That's so funny. Oh, you can wait till the last minute. Yes, if something got cancelled. So, oh, yes, I've got a whole band who who could just uh, stop, drop everything they're doing. For a random time. Yeah. Very funny. What kind of, what world are you living in?
0: Oh, <laughs> I'm thinking about what you're talking about in terms of the writing, because I'm a writer and I've noticed that I'm, with the poetry, I'm slower because I feel, when I was younger, and I, and I think it was connected a little bit to libido, but when I was younger, I could crank out 30-page poems in a night, and now it takes me a year to do one. Um yeah. You know, which is interesting. But I look at people like Dylan or Elvis Costello and it's like they're writing these really long, expansive songs now. Um, which is which is unusual to see like the length of, of the songs. Yeah. Um and then I look at someone like I was listening to Desmond Decker last night, who I'm I'm sure you 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 must be a fan of Desmond Decker, right?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing I learned to play in my own weird way, you know, in my own unconventional way, was um 007, oh,
0: town. Okay, and Desmond that's Decker. that's two minutes long, right? So yeah, so, it's about that. Yeah. Right. So you think, like, so with with the economy of someone like Desmond Decker, where he gets the job done, I don't think I don't think you and I would argue about that. Um, yeah. Versus these long, expansive songs um, that come from from uh, say someone like Dylan or Costello, and then maybe you're somewhere in between that. I mean, it's kind of, it's an interesting place to be.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, I could certainly write much longer songs. Um, but I don't want to bore the crap out of the audience anymore. You know, and I I, I just don't want to, um, you know, what, uh, it has to be said, Desmond Decker's songs were hardly Dylan-esque, you know, so they suited <laughs> but, the yeah. two-minute format, you know. <laughs> Fair they enough. They of snap, snap, we're done. We danced. It was fun. We fell in love, you know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so it's so a very different type of songwriting. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel as though it's, it's better to to not go on and on and on and on and on I just feel like that at the moment but you know never say never you don't know what's around the corner really um also you know I don't want to have to remember these what if I write something great and it's seven minutes long and it's got 10 verses and I have to remember it because people think why aren't you playing that that's one of your most popular songs right now. It's like, well, I, I'd have to have the, I'd have to have it the on a stand. I used to do that at one point because I was writing songs at a higher rate and playing solo. And okay, this is a new one, and I'd have the lyrics there. But now I can't see the lyrics, you know, especially with a pair of sunglasses on, even though they're light. So I can't see them. I'd, I'd have to be playing and going like this. Right. Uh, okay, hang on, I'm just chain, turning the page here. I mean, these guys can afford, um, you know. Whatever it's called, you 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 know, the screen.
0: Oh, like a teleprompter.
1: Yeah, they can afford teleprompters, yeah. you know. I think even Bruce Springsteen uses one.
0: I'm sure. Isn't
1: it? I'm I, sure. i I've read somewhere he has a teleprompter. Because you know, man's got a lot of songs. Yeah. You know, I Understandably. Sometimes you think, gotta do this song, rehearse it in sound check. Okay, I am I'm, I'm unsure of a few verses, you've got a teleprompter. You know, uh, if I had a teleprompter, I'd need the words that big, you know, so so I it would be <laughs> it would be a bit pointless anyway. So I think maybe I'm being sensible writing short songs. I'm just being chicken, really. I'm, I'm just copping out. Well, <laughs> <laughs> copping out from having to ever play them ever again. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's, but, no, it, it feels it's a slower process. It just, it just, it just goes that way. And um, I just, I'm not someone who picks up the guitar every day. I can go for months without touching it. That's, really? That was another reason COVID was good. I, it, it just sat on the stand glaring at me saying do something i'm not doing anything mate just sit there and uh you know brinsley schwartz the guitarist in the rumor you know he's he'll just play for hours doodle around I'm, I'm just bored with it i want the, I want the inspiration i want a deep, deep bit of inspiration to sweep me away and i want to write that and then when it when it fades i want to stop and i'll leave it for a month i'll leave that song for a month you know i'll just leave it and i'll move on and i'll find some other parts and um you know, it's, it's always, um, you know, it's always intimidating with a blank page in front of you. Yeah. You've got some melodic structure, there's a chord and there's a blank page. It's, it's always been intimidating to me, but uh, I used to whip through it very, very fast. But I also think that it's almost impossible to write songs of any great classic masterpiece, if you want to call it depth, over the age of 30. Mm. You know, I, I'll fully admit I can't do it, and I don't think these other guys. I, I can hear Dylan or Costello. I hear all the words, and they, yeah, okay, I know what they're doing. You know, it's not like wow. You know what I mean? It's it's like yeah, I get it. Okay, five minutes too long, but it's it's still good, <laughs> still really good. That sounds great, but you know, I get it. You know, there's no there's no shocks or surprises or my God, this has set me off on a whole new trajectory. When you're twenty something and you're just clicking, the synapses are clicking. If you're if you're someone like me with a very imaginative mind and um, you know, with obvious abilities that i hadn't tapped into until i was you know 23 i mean rapidly from 20 to 23 boom the synapses are firing everywhere yeah and i was picking up on everything that i needed and bringing it in and regurgitating it you know it was like a howling wind literally it was like a whirlwind going off of me i think over 30 that generally that that peters out a bit and I think it's you know I, I don't think um, real masterpieces are quite as possible, and then people call them masterpieces, and I hear it, and I think no, nah, I don't think so. I think it's good from from great writers like people you mentioned, other people. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's good. I think there's, this is a some critic who's just you know trying to be the one who said it. You know, they're full of, they're full of it. Critics at the moment, they're not very good. The, the level of uh, music journalism is um, yeah, not so great.
0: No. Now, I've, I've noticed a massive uh, – the days of Lester Bangs are, are long over. Um, but you, you know, if you look at the velocity of youth, what, what you're talking about, I mean, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote Great Gatsby before he was 25. The Beatles broke up before they were 30. I mean, your, your, your thesis is pretty good in terms of if you look at the masters, you're right. I mean, like, I mean to me, yeah. I think like, the, last, the last album that was made that is a classic in the modern era would have been Amy Winehouse's Back to Black record, and she was 24. Agreed. Agreed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Best record I've heard since Bob Marley reinvented himself with Catch a Fire. Yeah. I thought she was up there with that kind of talent um, on that record, you know, and uh, who knows what would happen next. But, yeah, I, I'm not saying anyone's writing bad stuff and it's unnecessary. It's you can very moving songs or very interesting. But that, but you, you know, you can point it out in terms of age. You, you can make a case for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Something just sort of I don't know what it is. There's a there's a kind of <laughs> when you're a young man and you're on fire with youth and love and right and yeah. everything you yeah. that is something like you, if you were able to, to bottle that you, you would make billions of dollars. But but you can't. You just can't. There's a fearlessness. There's a recklessness. Yeah. There's an unreasonableness and it all adds up to great to great output.
1: Yeah, and you you don't know the rules, you know? No. The rules, your own rules aren't set in place. And, yeah, all those things, libido is exploding and and connections are exploding with the world. I mean, I watched my son, who's now 25, and uh, I watched this explosion of being able to deal with the world when before it was like, you know, this guy's going to lose his keys. He's not going to find his... How is he finding his way out of the door? You know, and he's like 20. And then he's like 22, 23, he's see seeing all this, this stuff click into place and he made an album on his, on his computer, which is fantastic and beautiful and some int- very interesting songs and uh, a lot of you could, I could watch it exploding. I thought, this, well, this looks kind of familiar. Um, yeah. You know, so there, there's a case to be made for that, but uh, that does not devalue anyone's work. When they're 60, 70 or 80, it doesn't devalue it at all. I'm just making this point that I think the real essence and the real explosion that that blows people's mind, and of course everyone else is young with you when they hear you. Mm-hmm. So for them, it is so incredibly important because when people say you saved my life in my college dorm, squeezing out sparks, stick to me, you absolutely say, you know, this 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 happened to that person, that happened to that person. It's youth. It's it's because they're young, and it's it's so important when these these the connections happen.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I and I think I remember Billy Bragg told me like 20 years ago or so he was saying he said I still love the Clash, but I don't feel the way I felt when I first listened to the Clash, which made me really sad. But now yeah. in my 50s, I get it. I understand what he what he meant yeah. and what he means. Do you feel that way too? I mean when you, when you listen back to the stuff of that era that was so exciting and, and vital at the time, your contemporary stuff that was maybe make you a little bit even competitive, because there was like a pretty pretty stocked pond out there. Do you, can you still feel that youthful fire when you hear that music, or does it... You
1: know, if it's, if it's soul music or Tamla Motown and it comes on the radio, I still get the same emotional bosh, you know, okay. explosion of hearing... Levi Stubbs singing, you know, Bernadette or something, which is one of the most powerful lost love songs. You know, my my life is worthless unless I have this girl named Bernadette. It's such youth, isn't it? I'm done. I'm, I'm over. I might as well kill myself. Bernadette, you know, it's and, and the way he sings. But it is as much as any of the vocal sound. I think with that stuff, uh, if I listen to stuff, you know, I mean, I, I didn't really... I must say, Dylan, for instance, I never knew anybody who owned a Dylan record. No matter how many acid acid pads or dope houses or you know all the freaks and the non-freaks, nobody I knew had a Dylan record. It was the weirdest thing. Wherever I went when I moved home to Guernsey, no one, you know, we'd have the Steve Miller album, and and the, the you know the the trippy one with the letters you can't read unless you're stoned, you know, and we'd have the you know the Santana records, you know. Oh yeah, come on! There'd be um, the, the you know the white album. There'd be Beefheart. Um, there was the first introduction to those that kind of music. People who like that kind of music, stoners, in other words, to to David. What's his name? David Peel on the Lower East Side. Oh God! Strangely, that kept it crept into this Maru, marijuana. I like marijuana. Have you have you heard him?
0: I know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's
1: it's punk. I think this guy was pure punk, you know. I like my... And he sang with New York. You like my... We like my... And all of a sudden, he's like absolute punk. I think John Lennon picked up on him and met him and hung out and jammed with him. Um, What a character. What, What stuff. I listened to that recently the other day, and it was just as outrageous. And we'd listen to that between Pink Floyd airy-fairy, you know, tripping music and stuff. Um, and nobody had a Dylan record. It was weird. And I'd hear him on the radio, and, I, you know, I knew how powerful he was. But when I started writing songs and I thought, I'm onto something here, I've got something. When I, when I really, and not just started writing them, I wrote one when I was 13, for instance, but when I really got, got that knack of it, I knew what I was doing and, and felt the soul music from my youth, teenage years coming back into me. And the Bob Marley had been around and I discovered Van Morrison. Mm. So, you know, his album, Astral Weeks, Tupelo Honey. you know, definitely a massive influence uh, because where he came from, there was all that soul in there. There were references mm. to jazz, blues. Astral Weeks was like a three chord blues album, mm. but it wasn't blues. Al- you know, I don't know what it was. Nobody knows what it is. <laughs> Nobody no one knows what it is. No. Uh, not even Van does. You don't know what you're doing. You know, I, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. When I wrote Passion is No Ordinary Word, I don't know what it is. So I'm like, that's a stupid title. That can't be a good song without, that's what. what? What kind of word is it? What are you talking about? I thought it was going to die a death. Discovering Japan, that's just too, you know, I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's only later when people are affected or I hear it back. When it's mixed, the whole album, and I think this guy belongs in a straitjacket. What is what is this all about? this, this is nuts? The stuff. This is how did I do that? How, this isn't me. I'm a guy who just wants to sit around and watch TV and have a cup of tea. I, you know. So I th- there's a total mystery about it, and there still is to this day. But um, I, you know, yeah. I, I, so Dylan, I didn't really have an album until Blood on the Tracks, hmm. and I just got a record deal and you know it's but somehow i picked up on him obviously through the the first album you've got to be kidding and i think that's from hearing rolling stones like a rolling stone occasionally on the radio and thinking everybody in the world would want to rewrite this song and be as good as this without really knowing dylan's work you know i never listened to the whole the whole blonde on blonde album and you know it, it was just one of those weird anomalies really um you know the stones, however, that was uh, that was the first album I bought, or rather my parents bought. I was like twelve or thirteen when the, that very first stones album came out. I had to have that, and it would and if I hear a track from that it 's still just as great today, but it, it obviously doesn 't fill you with the same thrills, yeah, the same edge of your seat explosion of the brain thrills it just doesn 't
0: well, I think there in those days when that hits you there's a there 's also a modern application to it where it would give you the energy or the resolve to go ask the girl out, or it would feel like the the um, the way to soothe the broken heart when the girl says no. Right. In other words, there's it was almost like a, a set of keys that you would use to try to open up certain doors. And now yeah, they
1: saved you and they got you through. They right. You, they moved you through to the next phase of whatever your, your life was, which in those days, when you're young, could be minute by minute, day by day. Um, right. Yeah, so the, the, uh, the, it's, I mean, amazing, what an amazing time to be alive in the 60s when, you know, I'd heard Elvis Presley and um, I'd heard Buddy Holly and I didn't like all that hiccuping sound or Elvis Presley sounded operatic to me because I missed the sun period, I didn't hear it, that's all right, mama, I heard that awful, mushida, that in German and I don't have a wooden, I said, this is crap, what is it? And, I, and I was, where's our music, you know, I didn't think that, but I probably felt inside, and then the Beatles and the Stones came, and to, first off, the Stones to me is like, that's, this is my music, this is it, and the Beatles got better and better, you know, it, it was just amazing, and then, how did, you know, and all these groups have been operating at the same time, and suddenly they got to be in the kinks. The Who, and every single The Who made was a whole story in itself, totally different from, you know, pictures of Lily to Happy Jack. These things are stories in two minutes plus. Yeah. So what a time to be 12, 13, 14, 15. And then I learned he got it from soul. They got it a lot of this from soul music. The Stones and the Beatles were doing, you know, Please, Mr. Postman, whatever they were doing stuff that was, you know, done by black, black musicians in America. And uh, that all opens up for you. You know, it, it was an amazing time to be young, quite frankly. I mean, it really was. And I have young people tell me today it's not it's so great now. You know? What you, you know, what I describe to them, they, you know, they don't, uh, they, uh, a lot of them don't feel the same in a way about their music somehow. I guess there's a massive choice. We didn't have choice then. You found out by word of mouth. Yeah. And, you know, you heard one song on the radio and it blew your mind and you had to buy the album. One song. Just a snatch of it was enough to turn your brain around, you know, with, with whatever artist it was, you know.
0: Well, you also had to chase it down. You know, like, you had to find it and you had – and it felt like you, you'd won some kind of battle where you would, you'd come out with this kind of trophy – um, and now you were, you were talking earlier about how the song will be released digitally and it's, and it's like there's no there's no challenge to um, there's no pursuit it's just it's just there and so it becomes it's almost like the, the music itself loses its value it shouldn't um, because of its no. acce- you know the accessibility of it makes it feel less valuable which to me is really um, is really depressing you know um,
1: yeah I know the way young people have got access to everything. You know, they've all heard Scarf, which you know I got into when I was fifteen, and they've they, they all know these things are there and they hear them. But uh, I don't know whether the impact is is the same. It must be for some people. Um. So they they they've got a lot of scope if they if they want to play music or listen to music. They got they got the world at their fingertips. Whereas we had to go to obscure record shops. Right you know, and hear it from friends under the grapevine about muddy waters and things like this, you know. And then you see one show on TV, an obscure show of a blues musician, and it's like unbelievable. It just explodes everything inside of you. Um, But, you know, I'm not putting it. There's a lot of good records I hear from new bands. And, you know, I hear them and I I enjoy them. Um, I, I... i find it difficult when i hear critics who are my age and should know better going on about some band like they they really are the new beatles or the jack one and i hear it and i think yeah that's good and then i hear it going on the radio I hear it, yeah it's good i get it but this guy who's writing just wants to make a living you know where were
2: you when the red came where were you when the rain The ring. I was just rolling up some real good black. Knock on the door and the window cracked. The DS just come to bust the fund. Everybody scatter and run. Where well, I was with a baby in the bathroom. Hanging out the pocket while I cook spoon. Somebody yell, hey, my head's on fire. Just can't take it no
0: Desmond Ducker, by the way, I know he was around. Did... No, The Rumour did a whole album with him. It was on Stiff Records,
1: because Dave Dave Robinson, who started Stiff um, a year after, basically, well, almost straight away, started working on it. He, he, he was my manager, and his dream was to make a record company that would do all these things that sounded ridiculous to me and I didn't want anything to do with. And he started that label, and I'd had two albums out on Phonogram, you know, he, he, he was a mover and shaker that put me in the right position to get a record deal instantly, and he had Stiff Records, and he had Desmond Decker, right. I think, doing his old songs again, with the Rumor, as the backing band, is called Black and Decker,
0: best t- album title in the world, Black and Decker. <laughs> That's a great it's, title. You know, look it up, you've got to check it out, man. I did not know that because I know yeah. I know he did stuff with the specials and I know that um, but I didn't know how were you not but you weren't involved in that at all.
1: No, no, I had nothing. I would never met him. No, no,
0: no. What was your take on on like the specials or the English Beat? Did you like that stuff? Was that in the pocket for you?
1: Oh, I thought it was great song. I thought Madness was such was great songs. You know, Our House and uh, marvelous compositions, very original. Even though they took Scar, the specials not so much. You know, they they're fantastic, but um, the songs weren't like the Madness, who were like uh, the Beatles of of Scar. Yeah, uh, but they weren't. They were London English. It was so English, like the Rolling Stones are English. You know, but they're filtering through this this music by black people, basically from either you know America in the case of the Stones and Jamaica in the in the case of Madness and the specials, and uh, they were. They, I thought it was all it was all quite fun. I thought I, th- I really did. I, I, I think I saw Madness in a little club somewhere. Um, I think it was Dave Robbins's birthday, one of those things. And he signed them to Seth, you know, and he, you know, he he was picking up on all this stuff. And, and um, they just had really good songs, really good songs. And songs came to one of my shows the other day in London. Oh. Uh, and he came with Paul Weller. I, I, I know Paul Weller. He was around the corner. He said, well, yeah, I'd like to come to the show. Can I bring my mate Suggs? I said, oh, yeah, bring Suggs. And Suggs like, talked through the whole show. I think Paul was going, shut up. And and all of my punters were saying, okay, we're all going to a madness gig so we can stand in front and talk. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know whether he has much respect for me playing solo or what. Um, I saw his show, actually. Um on on a on the t- on a on a on a on aeroplane it was him talking about his life and his songs and all this and do, acting it out and then singing with a piano player you know so it was basically him solo and I had respect for that but I don't know whether he's got respect for me but he's all right he just the guy drinks let's put it that way um, but that, they were fan- they're a fantastic band you know I really I really enjoyed it yeah
0: well, they also seemed to have – they were having a really good time. They seemed like there was a charming kind of fun about the music as well. It wasn't great. Yeah,
1: and, and the songwriting abilities. That's what got me. Uh. I thought, this is, this is clever stuff, you know. This is, uh, and then picking that Labby Siffry song, it must be Love, 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 which I heard Labby Siffry. he Labby Sifri was his uh, – I don't know, he was a uh, Caribbean guy. I think he might have been. He was on TV when I was a kid, and he was a black guy with a guitar and he wrote these songs, and he'd just be on some TV show, you know, they're, they're talking about this, and news item and that, and now Labby siphery's gonna sing a song, and one was, it must be love, 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 and madness. You know, whoever picked up on that and said, that's gotta be a hit, that's gonna be a real hit if we do it, and they did it, and it was, you know, very, I thought it was great stuff, it was a
0: great record. It's also cool, I didn't know you were pals with Paul, that's that's a very cool connection, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, I've met him in the past, and I've worked with Mick Talbot, keyboard player who used to be it was in Style Council he came to that show as well and Paul lives in my area in London and uh, you know we have a cup of coffee every now and again I see him uh, because it's a very area full of musical people so you run into these people that's all just sort of mates basically and uh, I did a record with I did a guest vocal spot with a band called Stone Foundation um, and Paul plays piano on it Mm. and he's reduced that band and Stone Foundation are a soul kind of you know a lot of minor chord funk soul band and they do they do take playhouse down which i did cover the amp people song so i join them on stage now and again and i open for them guitar to do 35 minutes or something which i will be later on in september i think at a place called coco in london yeah oh. i think that's that's coming up um yeah i actually um uh you know they're they're, they're really good they're a great band you know, see them any night of the week. They won't get to America, I don't think, because you know, um, American musicians come into our country, pick up a permit at the uh, airport that costs one hundred and fifty quid. We have to spend five thousand bucks and stand outside the U.S. embassy for uh, in the early morning, along with two hundred other people. You know, the, the special I keep that the special relationship does not go both ways. No, you no, know, that's a, there's a visa of five five thousand bucks, and um, you know, I. I'm priced out of bringing a, a British band here. It's just not worth it. I you know because uh, it's not like major record company money is going to get their visas English musicians pay for them. And you know putting the rumour say for instance when I was touring with them for a room for one, it's 10 grand, and I was, unpaying for it, baby, you know. It's not the old days. I mean, you paid for it in the end, but it was deferred because it was the record company. You know, we, we had budgets, 50 grand for touring. Yeah. 350 grand, 400 grand to make an album. And you spent it all. Stupid, stupid man. You know, what, I, what a fool I was. I could have done all those albums for third but you couldn't in a way you couldn't because the more you spend the better it will be that's what happened in the 80s and it started happening you know i got away with it in the 70s it wasn't bad except the 80s bigged everything up um but nowadays you know to take a band and europe you know now we've got the we've left the eu you know we've left the greatest community of nations the earth has ever seen Because that's what Britain tends to do. You know, now we're better off ourselves, aren't we? Yeah, we used to grow potatoes. (laughs) That's right. The foreigners came over and stopped you from growing potatoes. Oh, my God, we must leave the EU. So we left the EU and now bands um, cannot tour there without a great deal of difficulties, massive amounts of difficulties. Um, I think the European countries... Care about us, but the you know the the countries across the channel, Britain, the government does not, um, you know. So uh, you know, it's like a six billion dollar industry a year, music. But I guess the Tories can't work scams off of it. It's not something <laughs> they can particularly make a scam from and make money. So it's because most of it is working class people. Much of the pop songwriters, Rock and Roll people, are working class. If right, you know where I come from, uneducated class system, crushless, basically. So we found our own way of doing things, you know, and if we were but you've got to be very lucky and have a lucky talent. You know, that wasn't up to me. That was that was not up to me. What was up to me was to work hard at it and make the best of it. That was what was up to me. And I did that. Um, so so now even touring Europe, you know, it's it's a challenge. I don't know whether I'll ever go back, even solo. I don't want to deal with this when you, you, you before you went through one border. He we went down the Channel Tunnel, went into France, no more borders, 27 other countries. Off you go. Fantastic! what I call freedom. It was fabulous. Ruined by ignorance. But anyway, I, 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 I changed the subject. No, or no. Whatever.
0: Because I know Maybe you... Not. But you did explain really well, like, why in the 80s, when I was a teenager, all these great British bands were playing here in San Francisco, like all the time. I mean, it was sort of like, Oh, I missed the fall. I'll see them again in six months. I mean, it was sort of like, yeah. and, and they'd be back in six months. I mean, they were, they were here. A lot of small bands were here too.
1: Yeah. Yes, you could, you could get over on a wing of a prayer and tour, do some gigs in America. Yeah. But now it's, you know, you the, the, it's heavy surveillance on everyone. You can't just you kind know, of get away with it. You know, it, it, it's all right. You've got to do things the right way or you're going to get, you know, Prison sentence or something like
2: that. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: It's it's a very dystopian, uh, you know, society built for wealthy people and connections and power. But it, it's, um you know, I, I I feel privileged. I always feel privileged. I'm not complaining. I'm describing reality to you. Yeah, That's what I'm describing. I'm I'm one of the lucky ones. You know, I started in a time when records sold. You did not have to be a superstar to make a living, and uh, I I was, you know, the the. The critics that wrote stuff about me—they, you know—it was. I, I, I'm deeply privileged, and and I'm still doing it, and uh, and can you know afford to to spend the money. Although it hurts, it's getting harder. It's not, you know, it's not the eighties anymore, baby. You know, right? Uh, I've really had my fun, but um, yeah. So it's it's just tough, you know. As I said, just to, to, in another blog the other day, so I a podcast about the Stone Foundation band. They should be all over America. They're, you know, it's like soul, and they're entertaining, and it's, there's a market for it. There's room for it, um, but you just look at the the hassle, the hassle, the hassle, bad, it's the costs. You know, it's not it's not as simple anymore. No, but you know, the world doesn't stay the same. It changes. That's it. Yeah, you're, you're stuck with it.
0: It's true, but if you look at an album, like one of my all-time favorite albums is the Live Alone in America album that you did in like, what was that, 87 maybe? or No, 89. 89. That
1: was from my first professional solo tour, 1989.
0: Yeah, and how, in terms of the economics of that, like recording that and actually orchestrating that tour, was that costly for back then or was it pretty economical even for considering the time?
1: Oh no, that was economical. Was my tour manager said you're getting paid pretty well for this. I, I, I had a tour manager and a sound guy, and we, you know, and we, we just we went we everywhere, all over America, all over all kinds of places, and then Europe, a bit later on, 1991. Um, that was I, I remember I opened for Bob Dylan for about seven dates in the Hammersmith Odeon, and. Um, I, there were two more dates, but I I couldn't do them because I had this tour books and it was like months all over Europe, you know, playing clubs. It was small places, and then the next day you'd be in a theatre, you know, in a major city. Yeah. Or the next day, why in the wild country in Italy, doing a doing a show, and and it's packed. It's like why, and the people were younger than me. They they just come out, and they, it was a fantastic period. That was like 1991. Um, you yeah, know, it, it's a privilege to have had this stuff. um and you know so i feel bad for a a lot of lot of acts that have got such struggles to to take their music around
0: well and by the way any interactions with Dylan, or was he pretty was he pretty isolated
1: well he he invited he wanted us to play the um blackbush airport he he was he 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 was hit to howling wind you know he'd love to ask me questions and stuff and um and he won, uh, that was the biggest one-day festival event in in history at one point, the Blackbush Festival. Yeah. In 1978, it was massive, and um, you know he he was picking the pick. and then you know I got the word from my manager, Dylan would like you to open for him, you know, on this uh, European tour, and uh, you know I, he seems a shy guy to me. I, I'm not going to you know what do you say to Bob Dylan? So how did you write like a Rolling so I mean, I just like hey Bob, he said Graham, you sounded good up there tonight. You sounded good, man. And he'd come out every night at a certain point uh, and sit behind the, the mixing desk wearing a Moroccan jalaba. He was going through the Mo- Moroccan jalaba phase, you know, we have a, a hood on, you know, it's a sort of a. He was going through that phase, and um, and oh, he was fantastic to watch every night. I was intrigued because he didn't have the lighting set so you could see him properly. It was like, and uh, it was just fantastic. It was great every night, even though it wasn't. Um, you know, technically you could sort of take it apart a bit and say, why is he singing every lyric of the song before that part of the music comes up? It was like, Hey, is a you and play a song for me in the band. I'm asleep in the end of I'm going to... It was marvellous to watch. My tour manager, I was a big fan. But yeah, he would come out every night and sit at the the monitor and listen. At that one point, to a song I was playing called Wrapping Paper, which came off of um, uh, Struck by Lightning. Mm. And I had, cass- it was cassettes, a lot of cassettes in those days. And, I, and, his, his, and at the end of the tour, his, his seamstress, his costume lady, came down and said, Can you, can you have you got a cassette for Bob? <laughs> he, was, he wanted to ask you, but he asked me to come. And- <laughs> so he said, Because he loves that song, Wrapping Paper. He really loves it. So I said, yeah, yeah, take a cassette. So, um, but, he's, I, you know, it was just it, it was a privilege to to be able to, to, to do gigs with him. And but then I, I went on and I had to do this, this whole European tour solo. And uh, uh, these were good times, you know, because I thought in 76 when my first album came out, I thought, well, I've got three albums that will I'll, you know, I'll make three albums. And then I, I don't know whether you carry on after that. Do you do, you know, have, surely you've, ex, you've explored and ejected all of this, what we were talking about earlier, all this synaptical yeah. brain explosion of that area of your, your life as a songwriter and as a writer and whatever else as a fan of music and i didn't think i'd get beyond three records that seemed like a lifetime i mean to go beyond 30 is a ridiculous idea <laughs> it's like as you know it, it is it's ridiculous and probably we should be stopped by law because by it's like you cannot make the master but you've done it you just got squeezing out sparks you had howling wind that's it that's your lot mate um so but you know there, there it was, and, and, uh, and it didn't really work that way, I, I, I found it, by the time I made Mona Lisa's Sister, I thought jeez, I'm good, damn I'm good, <laughs> listen to this listen to this song, back in time are you kidding me? holy mother of pearl and I'm like 37 or 38 um, so yeah you, know, you realise hey, there's a lot more yet, pal, than three albums of the, three or four albums of intensity and youth, you
0: know was there was there a plan B for you? Uh, no,
1: I mean Ringo had a plan B, didn't he? He Said I'd like to open some hair salons. He had a plan B. I didn't really have one. I just thought all I need is a few thousand quid in the bank, which is a king. Was seemed like a king's ransom, and I had a whole lot sure. more than that. If I have that, I can live forever quietly and do very little. Go fishing, you know. Maybe I would emerge, you know. <laughs> Like a Mr. Mysterious Graham Parker comes away from fishing for roach in the Basingstoke <laughs> Canal. <laughs> and I, yeah, he, he reemerges and and but the album is very strange. You know, it's not successful. And I, I, you know, you have these rather naive ideas about life. And one of them is you cannot surely live beyond thirty, and if you do, you cannot be viable as a human being. And I thought that was a, a pretty good idea, actually. It drove me on to doing stuff, you know, getting a lot done.
0: I like the idea of writing an autobiography called uh, Living Quietly and Doing Very Little.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I saw a woman with a t-shirt the other day, don't ask me to do stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I
1: said, well, I'm not going to wear that, but I like the sentiment.
0: I like the sentiment. Um, <laughs> were, your, were your parents supportive of your pursuit into this vocation, as it were?
1: absolutely totally they could not believe what happened to me they could not believe it they didn't know that this would happen they knew i had talent because i'd always picked up a guitar you know 13 i had this uh, sort of dress up band pretending to be the beatles and we just hit the guitars and we actually played in front of kids and charged some money i was like 12 or 13 um but uh yeah um I didn't take it seriously, I just went and worked, and I, then I left home and I became a freak, you know, the hippie freak thing, I went through that and it was fantastic, one of the best times of my life, and um, then I, you know, I just basically got jobs, I worked in factories, I was working in a, a petrol station, a gas station as an attendant, when I got a record deal, I got a record deal, and, you know, my, my parents didn't see it coming, I didn't see it coming, but I just thought if somebody hears this who knows their stuff and isn't bogged down with prog rock, because it was all prog rock then, it was all the stuff I really loved a year ago. Mm. And now I was doing these three-minute songs that came from Rockabilly, from Soul, Dylan Esch, Van Morrison, Soul, you know, and the, the roots of music, even Scar, well, a reggae groove, you know, and Don't Ask Me Questions in the Chatter, And, and, um, and I, it was very hard to get through to people then. You know, they could not understand that. It was, why isn't it sounding like, a bit like Genesis or something? You know, uh, people think it was all punk in 75. So, no, it wasn't. That was there, but it was prog rock. I'm telling you, I lived in the suburbs a lot. I lived with my parents a lot of the time when I wasn't in a London squat, And it was, it was basically still Pink Floyd ruled you know, it couldn't get any better than that, it couldn't possibly get any better, it couldn't get any better than those musicians who were like real musicians they were influenced by classical, oh yeah, (laughs) can't get any better so my songs were, you know people wouldn't understand them if they heard them, i played a to people and only a few people did but I, I, I just thought this is too good, it's too good, there must be somebody and then Dave Robinson I met him and He put it on, he got it on this radio show and immediately, you know, demos on a a small radio show I'd never heard of with this guy Charlie Gillette. And I got a record deal and I didn't see it coming, but it was like, well, I knew if somebody had the common sense and was intelligent and could hear it and realized we cannot stay in this, you know, this sort of... uh, Overly sensitive. Oh, I'm a real musician, man. I, you know, I like classical. We couldn't stay there. I, I figured that out in about 1973. That's when it started happening to me. That I, you know, I've got to come out the other end of this. It was good, and it still is good, but it's better. And and I, and I went the other way. Uh, and there's there's more direct, and there's, there's rock and roll. There's real rock and roll. There's pop tux, pop, and I can use this. I can do it all, and I did. And and my parents were, like, astounded and extremely happy. You know, it was just a marvellous thing for them. They could not believe it. I'd have a limo, pick them up, and bring me to Hammersmith Odeon. There's 2,000, 3,000 people there. Um, and it, they just loved it. And I, and I was more, I was as grateful for that as anything else. That, because they thought I was, you know, my mum was probably very deeply disappointed uh, that there was nothing going on for me. I'm 24 25 there's nothing going on boom there it is you know what how why and they always knew I had some talent you know and they, they, they always knew you know I played a bit of guitar and you know that wasn't a, a common thing but I didn't I didn't stick with it it took me a long time it really took me all that time from being 13 years old to wanting to be the Beatles or the Stones you know it took me a long time but um so unlike a lot of the acts, they were, play, they were out, they were playing terrible gigs and uh, being beaten up and thrown out of places when they were 17 and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Even some, some of those punk bands, they were all younger than me, all of those punk bands, all those punk people really, apart from Ian Drury, who was not, I mean, calling him punk is a bit limiting, you know, I mean, it, calling anyone punk is a bit limiting. Yeah. Yeah. Really, they were all younger than me. I, I took a long time to get there. I was, you know, 24, and things started to happen then.
0: Well, I mean, maybe it was better off, don't you think, that had you gotten had you gotten that same attention at 18 or 19, um, it feels like it could have gone a bit haphazard because of what you and I were talking about, with that sort of youthful momentum, which is just not a reasonable emotion or feeling to be sitting with. Yeah. Right. yeah I, I, I had that self-preservation instinct right
1: I, I think I've always had that in a way um, you know go mad but not too mad. I mean I always had a sense of, of you know of that. I felt as I had something to do, and I couldn't blow it all by falling off the cliff, you know. But there were a lot of things I did in China that were like, I can't believe I lived. I wake up in a sweat sometimes, thinking of some things I did. I don't even want to talk about it. It was just like that was pushing my luck. <laughs> it really was. But be, be beyond once I got beyond uh, that scatterbrained hyper, I was pretty hyper. I still am, I guess. If I wasn't, I couldn't have done what I do. Yeah, because I mean, I'm either a guy, I'm either hyper or I'm comatose you know so, <laughs> just one of the other uh, yeah um, but uh, it's not quite that bad so yeah I, it, you know it was it was one of uh, the self-preservation kept me going like uh, don't die you've got things to do you
0: <laughs> and you must have seen people die around you at the time I mean people must have there were casualties obviously and that must have that must have been kind of sobering
1: I've seen more in the the normal world than in the rock world actually more of my uh. friends.
0: Because I grew up
1: with people who didn't go into the rock world. Maybe that's it. Into the world <laughs> of pop. They, no, they were just people. You know, two of my best friends died at fifty-nine. Um, you know, I was, I was in just just about. In my, I guess I was sixty-two or something by then. They died. You know, um, and, um, and yeah, other people, friend. Friend of mine just had a stroke. Who's about my age and. Yeah, you, you you don't know what's around the corner. I mean, you know, to get this far is is pretty pretty lucky, I suppose, if you consider being alive lucky. <laughs> it's 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 debatable,
0: you know. <laughs> it's, it's worthy of discussion. Um,
1: I, remember, I remember my dad. I remember my dad saying, "You know, we're talking about things reincarnation." He said, "Oh, I hope not. I don't want to go through all this again." <laughs> <laughs> and he was a pretty happy, he was a very upbeat, happy guy. I got a lot of my, myself from him being like, you know, make a joke of it. Maybe it's funny, man. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, you, you got to laugh. Um, but he, you know, he, he said that and I thought, yeah, it would be a pain in the
0: nuts, wouldn't it? i go through all this. <laughs> Do it again. <laughs> How, have you, is there anything musically collaborative with you and your son? Has that been something you've thought about or you guys have done? No,
1: he's—I don't know what his, his stuff. He's got—he put this record out, Corrector Mundo*, and it's—it's it's just put out by himself. You know, hardly anybody heard it, and they say they'd follow me, and they thought, oh, I've got to listen to his son and download it. You know, he didn't make any CDs. And, and now he lives in Los Angeles after Covid. He went out with a few friends and he's he's working, doing editing for um, all, all kinds of stuff like, you know, computer stuff and to do that ads and things. And he's, he's smashing it out there, really. And he, he makes music constantly. I'm not up to speed with what he's doing, but it was so highly imaginative, the melodic structures. I thought, holy moly, where's he, he's got something that I've got, but, but more and in a different way. Um, but it was done on his computer, so he was learning as he went along. So the, the, the drums, you know, they're not, sometimes it's a little bit, you can hear a little bit like that, but that shouldn't matter at all because I right. thought it was so good. But I tried to get, you know, to contact radio stations and indie, lab, you know, indie radio stations and no dice it. Yeah. They don't want to hear anything unless it's caught a trend already. You know, they're not going to give it the time of day. Has it caught a trend? Uh, is there any cachet in this? Am I buying into something that might be successful so that I can say, I was there, I played their record? It, there's, there's, no, there's no one listening. People are listening, but they're not hearing. I find that's a, a, a lot of the case. They listen, but they don't hear. They're yeah. not hearing my music. You know, Fans are. I know they are. But people listen and get a snapshot view of something, and they dismiss it, or they... Or whatever, or everybody likes it, and it's trend and it's buzzing, and then they like it too. Then maybe they start hearing it a bit. Yeah.
0: They yeah. Hear it a
1: lot.
0: Well, I mean, that 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 just explains a lot of the problems with the modern society too, where you just hop on because you think you're supposed to hop on, you know?
1: Yeah, it's there's more sheep like than ever, I think.
0: Yeah, I think I, you're I think right. It
1: really is, because we're exposed to the media that creates the sheep instantly. Right. You know, we, we, we weren't when we were younger. we... You know, I'm not being nostalgic or anything. I'm not. It had to, this, These things have to happen. They happen. You know, I totally accept it and go with the flow. Um, apart from the fact that you shouldn't accept not getting paid well enough on Spotify, where record companies are getting paid for themselves and didn't share it with you, shouldn't accept that. Really, um, you should constantly expose that and talk about it and uh, uh, and all this stuff. <laughs> You know, it, it was just you, you didn't. You it grew slowly and more organically when in the days before media was like it is, and and you know, people styling and trending. I mean, what's that all about?
0: Were you suspicious of the whole video trend when suddenly you had to make videos for your for your albums and MTV no, was?
1: No, the opposite. I pioneered it as much as I could.
0: Really? I
1: thought, yeah, I was. You know, I thought of this future. I'm sure a lot, quite a few people did. We thought of this future where it will be less like lying down in a room, listening to music with the lights down and be more visual. Mm. And I, I wanted it. I kept saying to Dave Ronson, we need to do videos. And we did for local girls. We did protection. I mean, for squeezing out sparse protection and local girls with this guy, Chuck Statler, because Dave had Devo on his label. And he said, this guy Chuck that was going to say, get him. And I, I really thought that was the future. I thought MTV was the future. I was all for it. Um, but then, of course, different styles come along, like all the, the glam hair, yeah. metal, and some guy, Abby Conowitz, runs the station and, and loves it and wants that on all the time. And you know, there are no black people on there, right? <laughs> and they reluctantly kicking and screaming gave Nirvana a chance because they didn't want anything to rule other than this, these stupid looking hairbands, you know, with the, the pantaloons and things, you know, and all this angst and drama, uh, fake drama and stuff. And, and Nirvana were real, but they, they couldn't stop it, you know, and then things changed, thankfully. From that breakthrough, really, with that with with band being actually on video and being shown, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, well. So
1: there was those, you know, uh, but yeah, be careful what you wish for, you know, but I, I was all for it. And I've, I've, I'm all for streaming because I was all for cassettes. Mm. I love cassettes, I was all for it. Uh, I just, you know, it's, it's, it's just sort of the unequitable pay scale is the, the worst
0: thing. Well, that is kind of the problem. Did you like Nirvana, by the way? Were you a fan? Of, of what? Of Nirvana?
1: Yes, I did. I mean, not a great deal because um, I was older. Yeah. You know, I loved them. I knew they were good. I was even doing um, In Bloom, a oh. uh, solo once. I'd crank the guitar up and make it fuzz and sell kids for food, wear the changes. And I was, you know, I, was, I liked it, and, but it's, you know, again, it didn't affect me like music did when i was 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 18 20 and then you know as we were talking earlier it was the same thing it was like this is good i understand it these people are good this guy's great you know and thank goodness it came along and turned young people's heads away from you know all those glam looking you know crinkly hair waving in the wind bands yeah yeah away from that made them wait. whoa wait a minute this stuff this is the
0: stuff man yeah yeah it so it did, it did obliterate it. that sort of hair metal thing and it made it kind of obsolete which was nice um because MTV in the early days it was the 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 videos were more conceptual and then suddenly it was like let's just get a bunch of hot girls in bikinis and that sort of ruined the kind of filmmaking i mean I, yeah. look i was 15 i didn't have a problem with it like i was you know i i liked looking at it of course
1: that was fine yeah
0: it was fine but if you think about it now it's like, yeah, it did sort of throw the whole medium off the rails. It made it a little bit less, with much less depth, actually. Probably. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I actually was at some inaugural thing for MTV, and it was in the what used to be called, uh, what's, it's called Webster Hall now, the Ritz in uh, New York. It was some night, and MTV were there saying, "We're MTV, you know, we're going to be this video channel, just videos." And uh, I, I remember being there. And in those days, there were so few videos, they'd play anything. They'd play my videos, just like that, boom. Yeah. Was, there was nothing, you know, that's how things start out. And of course, then, then it comes to be successful and money comes into it, as always.
0: How have you been in terms of keeping up friendships? It seems like, you, like you're good at it. It seems like it's something that you, that you do. You're not a guy who's uh, not in touch with people. It seems like you've got like 40, 50 years in the business with people that you've known your whole life.
1: Um you mean before my with uh, non career people from childhood I mean
0: like yeah I mean like keeping up I guess business friendships people like Weller or the guys in the rumor or like yeah you're like you're still pals with these guys
1: Oh yeah yeah I t- I just don't like you know I try not to have bad blood and it doesn't I don't think it comes from me when it comes it comes from someone else Um I don't know it's you, do, you go through your life, you, you know, everyone has their quirks and stuff. I don't, you know, blame anyone for it, you know. We're so different. Some of my friends from childhood are so different from me. Um, they didn't do anything. You know, one of them was a bank manager. And, uh, and it's like, you mean you've never inhaled um, a gin? No, i never. He's like, what? Isn't it? Doesn't it, does it kill you? No, no, turn you mad? I mean, I'm like... Holy shit! I mean, you know, it's so different life, and uh, and we're friends. They come and see me, you know, and, and we hug each other and stuff. It's it's a it's a great thing, and you know, many people you lose touch with, and the rumor, you know, jeez, we did such great work together. We should be in touch. We should be friends. It should be all right. We didn't have that massive falling out explosion stuff. Mm. You know, we didn't have it. Maybe it's because it was Graham Parker and the rumor. It's like, OK, I'm writing the songs for this, you know, and you guys work out how to play them. And somehow what we get in the end is us. What we get in the end is we did it. You know, uh, you know, so there was I don't think there they they shouldn't there shouldn't have been any, enough to have rancor about, although there always is, because, you know, you're bound to get to a point where it's like, God, I don't want to do this anymore for another four months tour for what to play to the same people. I mean, even I got like that. You're kidding me. I took 1980 off. It was like, I'm just, you know, why, why do this? You know, give me a year off to stop touring. Cause that's what, that's what managers want to do. They want to put you out on the road. Yeah. I just read a Pogue's biography and Frank Murray is a person who was a manager and they they just worked to death. They're this hugely successful band, and he's got them playing in the Hope and Anger, which owns a hundred people, in between playing massive, big places. You know, it's like, stop, man, you're going to kill, they they kill people, managers. You know, they, they just ruin it by just, but that's, you know.
0: Well, there's even a theory that a management decision is really what cost Jimi Hendrix his life, because if you look at the tour that he was doing, where he was like going to Idaho, and then... To California, then to New York, and then back to California. That sort of crazy scheduling they did for him. Um, yeah, you know, th- there's a theory that that sort of burned him out, which is possible. Would you recommend the Pogues biography? By the way,
1: um, you know what? It kept going back to the page where Shane was drunk. He'd taken a variety of drugs. He was off somewhere, and it, and and then you know you get something happening, and then it goes back to Shane. However, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. Um, Yeah, you know, talking of of that kind of thing I mean, Tom Petty was about to get on a tour bus When he was suffering Right, he died Remember, you know, you're talking about overworking people I mean, he said, I love touring, I want to do it But uh, there was a comment, and said, I really need to I could spend more time with my family, that would be good But still, he was going to tour Because that's what you're supposed to do even though you're so successful, you'd never have to go get on a tour bus again if you didn't want to. And he was ill at the time, wasn't he? I think he had an yeah. opioid thing going on to treat some pain. I think it was that. Yep. And uh, it was an O.D. or something. That guy shouldn't have been getting on a tour bus. No. The management should have got hit to it or somebody should have been, he shouldn't be doing this, man. Get get better and then we'll tour all you like, you know. Um. So, you know, Shane McGowan is a guy suffering from all kinds of, you know, I mean, alcohol addiction for one, along with a load of other things. And uh, they were all being beaten to death. But he'd probably, if I, he heard me say that, he'd say, oh, yeah, idiot, I loved every minute. Of, but, you know, <laughs> people, people suffer from this. Um, but, so now that's why I do two gigs or three. And, and if I can get five days off and come back here and hang out, I will do it.
0: Yeah, which is which is wise. And by the way, did you love the Pogues? Are were you, were you were you a huge fan?
1: Oh, they were not a huge fan because, as again, I'm older. It's yeah, not that same thing. to. Yeah. if I was twenty, it would have been holy. Oh, my, But I did love. I mean, and I still do. They it was absolutely sensational, special music, special talent. A whole lot of them, you know, in all their various iterations. And Shane, you know. You could put, the, I think, Touched by Genius, you could put that
0: with some of his stuff. Oh, I, I so would, yeah. You know, I, yeah. I would agree with that. And did you know Joe, by the way, Joe Strummer? Did you ever have any contact with him? No, I
1: met him a few times. He came to one of my shows with The Rumor at the Marquee just before uh, The Clash um, was would really um, a thing. They would they were about to be The Clash. Or You know, he was with The 101ers. 101ers right. The pub circuit, basically. And, uh, you know, Dave Robinson had told me about the 101s, but I never I never got to see them. And he came and, and we were sitting around backstage and he said, have you heard the Sex Pistols? And I said, no. He said, whole new thing, man. Whole new thing. Not long after that, Johnny Rotten was saying, he's just jumping on the bandwagon. He was playing love songs a week before, <laughs> which he was. <laughs> One of they're doing some R&B. And uh, it was funny to... to to see that, to hear him say that. And I, now I haven't heard him. I saw that all these punk band names that were not ha- making it yet. And I was playing Two Nights at the Marquee. I thought, they're going nowhere, these people. These oh, punks. Yeah, I was for myself. He said, no, he's not the whole new. I thought, I'm not. He's am the whole new. And they, I think he hated us. And, and their manager did. I know that. We did a, a festival in Finland. And we got the head billing and The Clash weren't the headbilling. And they, they were not, he was, you know, probably totally pissed. And I think Joe took the punk thing seriously at the expense of anything I was doing and wouldn't see any worth in it, even though, you know, I sounded more like throat-lacerating punk than he did on the first album, you know. But I, I, don't, I, I don't think there was any great love there. And um, I, I thought they were a very good band, but too, uh, the, the seriousness of it, the poe faced you know, the revolution, the white riot... I was a bit older, and I thought I don't want to white riot. Yeah, come on, man, just make some money out of this. What do you think? Josh, <laughs> So, uh, and, and we did this festival in Finland, and I think it was in a book about the Clash, and it was like they, they were not pleased about this me being the headliner. They they were selling more records than me, to be fair, all around the world. Quite frankly, I think they were at that time. Maybe not. I think they were. And um, but in the book, it also said, but we got the the, the Clash got the last laugh. They got paid more. <laughs> So, so I definitely think it was like, okay, at least we got paid more than Parker. All that R and B rubbish he's doing. All the sold. And then they went on to use my horn section, the Room of Brass. They use my horn section on
0: records. I didn't, even, I didn't know that they used that.
1: Yeah, they weren't. Yes, they were. They were. They played with the Clash on some record. I don't know. I didn't listen to their whole album. I just heard tracks here and there. I might have No, they they did. They recorded with the Clash. You've got to look that. But they weren't called the Room of Brass because God forbid Joe Strummer would put the name of my backing band <laughs> on his album. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. No, it,
1: it was very a, a brilliant guy. You know, I mean, he made some great. They, they made some great stuff. You know, I think I like the Sex Pistols the most, and I'm not. I don't want to compare. There's that binary thing that's awful, but they were a comedy band to me. Johnny Rotten was a a comedy act. And he said himself, it was just nerves. I was was just going out and doing an English musical, like Arthur Askey, Askey, and doing those people, you know, doing the funny walks and all this kind of stuff. He was doing all that. He just didn't know how else to act, which is, you know, similar to me. I sang like I sang because I didn't know how to sing. I didn't have any professional experience or even non-professional experience. So I came out going, ah! Because I didn't know whether I could sing, you know. It, so this stuff that then it projects an image. Parker, angry young man. Oh, he's not angry anymore. Oh, is it worth listening to? No, he's not angry. You know, Johnny Rotten, comedian. You know, they, they, I thought they were very funny. That band. I
0: mean, it, oh, the, I,
1: the music was sensational. You know. I mean, it yeah, was thanks to to Glenn Matlock,
0: of course. Of course, of course. course. But Johnny Rotten was just—he was. It was like a bit. He was doing a bit. It was like a, you know. Yeah it was an act it was terrific
1: it was so terrific it was like wow he's onto something i missed a trick here he's being beyond angry he's being like i don't care what you do to me you know you can kill me next for saying these things right for uh, getting in your face whereas i was like no i'd rather live you know I'll, I'll be i'll be a bit more careful you know even though i was on stage doing all that, all this stuff it, you know he just took this to a
0: whole different level yeah, just a cartoon character and you can't you can't hurt a cartoon character.
1: Yeah, very funny. It was great. It was a great yeah. I, I thought it was an interesting period,
0: Well, before I let you run, I want to ask you a question. So I, I agree with your thesis about about the masterpiece after thirty is hard, but isn't there a part of you that wants to keep trying?
1: Oh, I do, yeah. Every, I still write songs and think, Yes, yes. I'm there baby I'm back again I'm 30 no not really Uh, no this is this stuff has got it's got a lot of things that that doesn't have a great deal of things that that does not have the the most thing I'm proud of is I can sing now you know that that started to happen in the 80s um I you know that that is a source of pride for me and um You know, I like having all these different uh, inflections and and different abilities in my voice. I still hear it and think, oh, my God, why aren't I a naturally great singer? Because I'm not. I had to find it. I had to work. You know, it's like naturally great singers just do my head in. Um, Even if they're people I don't like, it's like effortless voices just, oh, man. Just I have to work, and I'm. I still
0: hear it. Nah, you're not good enough, mate.
1: You know what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, you can keep at it. Is I guess that's the only thing we can do.
1: Yeah, man, keep at it until you stop.
0: Until you stop. Um, Hey, I appreciate your time. I really am grateful that you uh, were able to chat with me.
1: Thanks, Alex. I appreciate the honor.
0: There you go, Graham Parker. I appreciated his time. What a cool guy! He'll be back on. We'll bring him back. There are some Graham Parker stories that need to be told, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get them out of him. Uh, that was a blast, Graham Parker. Go to GrahamParker.net and uh, and pick up all of the music you can. It's all there. Plus some great anniversary editions, some cool uh, new stuff. Those two new songs are fantastic. Um, Pick up those. And uh, what else? What else is at the Grant Parker site? I don't know. Bootlegs, B-sides, tons of fun stuff. If uh, you're a Grant Parker fan, you will feast. If you're new to the game, you'll also feast. Everyone's feasting on great Grant Parker music. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. BombshellRadio.com will keep you informed about our radio station. Don't forget, if you want to follow me on Twitter... It's very easy to do uh, at Embers Editor or on Instagram at Embers Podcast or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, and tell every single person on this planet that you know. Let's close the show with a fuller listen to Temporary Beauty by Graham Parker. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio.